Hi, welcome to the Echo Podcast, where we discuss how our hearts and minds can be an echo of God's heart and mind and what that even means in this world. We're Pastor Dan Sincorn and Adrian Terulo from Shiloh Church of Jasper, Indiana. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about the book Insurgents, written by Frank Viola. So Pastor Dan, you uh, introduced this book to the congregation, I guess for the second time in a way, mm-hmm. this weekend. Um, and I just found your message so inspiring. Like I even told someone after that, I was like, man, Pastor Dan really, really brought the fire today. I mean, it was <laughs> awesome. I loved it. And being here, sitting here with you talking about the Insurgents book is very full circle for me because you and I were in the book study mm-hmm. four years ago, three years ago of the Insurgents. Yeah. Yeah. And so at that time it was like Emily, Abby, John, we were all together Mm -hmm. and I didn't really know anybody. And now here we are several years later down the road talking about it again. And this is just so cool. That is cool. Yeah. It was um, about four years ago. It was before the pandemic. And um, I had, um, I don't know, I bought something that gave me a three month Kindle Unlimited subscription and I stumbled onto this book called insurgents in that and I read it and I was just jaw drop moved by it because it was so in line with what I had always thought church and Christianity was supposed to be about and uh, so I immediately looked for people to share that with in the church and you were one of them and uh, little did I know that I would eventually attend a function during the pandemic with Frank Viola that uh, was uh, turned into a very small group because of the pandemic. And because of that, he and I became friends and we remain friends to this day. And so there is a whole sort of circular feel to this even for me because He's aware that the series is being uh, given at Shiloh and he's following it and interested and, you know, and, and I feel, uh, yeah, I feel like really something extraordinary happened. Yeah. So, so anyway, that's. Yeah. God is good. And so is this book. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, God clearly is speaking through it. Yeah. That much I'm sure of. Yeah, absolutely. So I pulled up your sermon notes from Sunday and I was reading through them and man, I just, I felt the fire again. So I put together a couple thoughts um, and like specifically related to youth ministry and just like church ministry in general. Um, and so one of the quotes that you had included in the, in the sermon notes was from Martin Luther. Mm-hmm. And it says this, quote, I am much afraid that the schools will prove the very gates of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the holy scriptures and engraving them in the hearts of youth. I advise no one to place his child where the scriptures do not reign paramount. Every situation in which means are not unceasingly occupied with the word of God must be corrupt. And that really got me thinking, like what are our children learning in school and in their lives? Sports and academics and everything, it's becoming so cutthroat. Mm -hmm. It's like sports are not fun anymore. 
I was talking with someone this morning who said when she was a little kid participating in school basketball, um, she overheard a mom talking to her eight and nine-year-old child about, you didn't play very well in this game. What about your college scholarship? I mean, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. An eight-year-old college scholarship. Mm -hmm. I mean, kids just, they don't know how to play. They don't know how to have fun. Um, Everything is just so serious and so just intense. And so we're looking at several generations. Like I'm starting from the millennials and working down. So millennials, Gen Z, Gen Alpha, and they've grown up or are growing up in a culture that teaches them that if you're not busy constantly, you're lazy. I mean, that's that's what we're hearing. Mm-hmm. In schools. And they're hearing that their self-worth is measured by how many activities you're involved in, what your grades are, who your friends are, what college you plan to attend. I mean, it's insane. It's like a never-ending hamster wheel. Mm. And I see it in the eyes of my youth group kids. They're just, they're trying to do the best that they can, but they're just involved in so much. And that's our culture today. So I'm doing this online uh, mental health ministry for the youth, and there was a statistic in there that said that one in five children in a given year will have a diagnosable mental health disorder. Mm. That's staggering. Yeah, yeah. And it's probably higher. I don't know how they arrived at that, but out of those kids, how many are actually seeking mental health care? And like, well, you know. I can't help thinking about your friend and my daughter, Bethany, who's a school counselor. Yeah. And the stories she tells, you know, obviously she doesn't betray trust, but she talks in general terms about the things she's dealing with and it's epidemic. It is. I'd love to get her on here sometime on the podcast. That'd be really cool. Well, you know, I think maybe the podcast will probably evolve into regular guest uh, experiences. I'll, uh, I don't know, I might have to get some more hardware and another microphone. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be so cool. Um, But yeah, I mean, that statistic is mind-boggling. Children, this is not adults, children with diagnosable mental health disorders. I don't see that resolving anytime soon in our culture. In fact, I think it's probably just going to get much worse unless Mm -hmm. there's some sort of intervention. And... I'm thinking on this, and I really think that intervention can be the local church. Yeah. How cool is that? Like, imagine if from a young age, we teach people that rest is vital to your well-being as a human. Imagine if children grow up knowing that they're loved for who they are and not for what they do or accomplish. Like, imagine if from a young age, children know their identity is that they are a child of God and they're loved immeasurably no matter what the toxic culture around them tells them. Mm -hmm. Here's some more staggering statistics. One in four teens experience cyberbullying. One in six are the bully themselves. Mm. Wow. A quarter of the kids who are just walking around have been cyberbullied. It's crazy. But there's, there's a prevalent issue in youth ministry, and it's not just here at Shiloh, but nationwide, of decreased participation in church programming. It's like, it's this culture of, I have a thousand things to do this week, but if youth group fits into my current schedule, I might go if I have the energy or if it sounds like fun. And that's just kind of like the general consensus. Yep. Because they're being pushed to do so much. And, you know, I get it. 
I really do. I understand that. Like, I was there 10-ish years ago. I remember what it was like. And I know what that pressure feels like to feel like you have to do all and be all to get into your dream school and to become something in this life and achieve these like lofty goals that you set for yourself. And, you know, getting into the minds of these teens, it's like, well, youth group isn't going to help me get into college. It's not going to make me smarter or better at athletics. So why, why bother? Why should I go? And, and that's a hard reality. But now we're talking about priorities, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I met with actually one of Shiloh's youth this morning, and uh, we talked over breakfast about this topic at length. And it was such a great conversation. That's um, so cool. Yeah, it was so awesome, so fruitful. And I just feel so revived by our conversation. Um, but she she was saying this too, like, we're just trained at such a young age to grind and to run on this hamster wheel as fast as we can every single day. And there's this message of don't quit, keep chasing your tail or keep chasing whatever you have your eyes set on. And of course, this spills over into adulthood. So now we're looking at several generations that prioritize everything except rest and spiritual health, right? I'm actually treating a patient right now. I work in physical therapy, for those of you who don't know. But I'm seeing a patient. She's like a young, middle-aged mom, and she has chronic pain. I mean, it's very clear. She has pain from head to toe. Mm. And there's a direct relationship to her like chronic high levels of stress to her chronic high level of chronic pain. Yeah. And that's really the case with a lot of chronic pain, actually. It's a lot of times stress-related, and the body holds on to stress. And so I tried talking about it with her a little bit about stress and different things in her session the other day. And I was like, well, why don't you try like taking a warm bubble bath, just breathe deeply, clear your head, maybe follow that up with a couple light stretches. And she laughed. And, and she said, I don't ever get one moment to myself ever. Mm. I never get to be alone. And she said, if, if I want to take a bath, I would literally have to check myself into a hotel room to do that. Wow. I'm like, wow, wow. You know, I'm, I'm not a mom yet, but I have a chronic issue of creating busyness in my own life. Mm -hmm. I rarely prioritize rest. I'm always working as hard and doing as much as I possibly can. And it's a problem. It's a problem. Mm -hmm. And so prescribing rest is, I guess, okay. Like there's people on social media who are like, oh, you know, set aside time in your schedule for rest, like schedule it in. Yeah. And I guess that's okay. But to me, that's kind of like a Band-Aid, right? Yeah. Because you're not looking at the motivation that lies within. The question is like, why are you always creating busyness in your life? Are you trying to prove to people that you're valuable? Like as a human being, I have value because I'm always striving to better myself and those around me. Is it attention seeking? Hmm. These are good questions. Is it because I believe that a component of what it means to be a Christian is to be a helper? Hmm. Is it because I genuinely love putting a smile on people's faces? And that's definitely not something I'm going to hash out on this podcast for, for myself, right? But I think it's an important question for everyone to ask. Why are you so busy all the time? Hmm. 
And as a church, this is an issue we're looking at square in the face right now, because especially here, we've been talking about how we can appeal to younger families and grow specifically in the younger generations. Yeah. Now, I, I love having good relationships with people older and wiser and stronger Christians than myself. And I think mentorship is vital as our to our walk as being Christians. Mm-hmm. And honestly, you and I, our relationship is cornerstone to how I've changed and developed as a human and in my faith journey in the last five years or give or take. Um, but that's because mm-hmm. you're older, wiser, you've learned from experience, years of Bible study and leading others through like a deeper Christian walk. And so I greatly value these close relationships with older adults, but I also recognize that we need to grow younger Christians for the longevity of the church. Yeah. And like we say here, big C church, this is not just Shiloh church. This is church in general. I don't care what denomination you are. Right. Church. Right. Because this is not just our church that's having this issue. It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. So how? how? (laughs) Right. Like, how? How do we do that? We're looking at generations who don't have time. They don't have the capacity to participate in areas like volunteering or book studies or doing all of this programming. So it's a culture issue. Like, it starts here. And so that kind of leads me to another quote from, I told you I was fired up about this. I can tell. I've I've got a lot of ideas today. But there was another quote from Diedrich Bonhoeffer, and it states, quote, If I sit next to a madman as he drives a car into a group of innocent bystanders, I can't, as a Christian, simply wait for the catastrophe, then comfort the wounded and bury the dead. I must try to wrestle the steering wheel out of the hands of the driver. And I can't really help but apply that to this, too, Mm -hmm. to this topic. It's like, so I love metaphors because they help me so much make sense of things. So I I came up with one. It's like our lives are a video game. So we're Mm -hmm. driving behind the wheel and we're in this video game. We have to get as many coins and power-ups and super speeds as possible, as fast as we can. And, you know, oh, well, if we run into a few people or things along the way, right? We're like on this fast-paced mission, And we're going, going, going. It's all about how much we can accomplish, earn, do, become, grow, achieve. And how fast can you do it, right? You're like trying Mm -hmm. to race the clock all day long. But at some point, we run out of gas because we're not a video game. And we have to keep ourselves sustained. And so I've found myself many times looking in the mirror and being like, wow, I have run out of gas. I am I am burnt out, right? So how how do we how do we do that? How do we keep going, right? How do we keep nourishing ourselves week after week and creating these moments of rest when the culture is telling us something entirely different? So, here's a question for you. Instead of sitting back and waiting and nursing the wounded, like is in that quote there, we're called, well, okay, okay, so this is one thing that we are actually called to do as a church, right? Like, we're supposed to be a hospital for the wounded mm-hmm. and provide spiritual, um, what did we call it in the podcast a few weeks ago? It was like, we did like an emergency room analogy. Oh, well, I, I, 
I call it spiritual triage. Yes. You know, um, you, you, triage is the first step in every emergency room or emergency department where the patients come in and you decide who needs the most attention first, you know, and it, it has to do with their level of urgency and the probable, uh, response, you know, and it, it's about prioritizing, uh, need and resources. Yeah. So we are called to do that as a church. Jesus tells us that, right? Mm -hmm. In a sense, like, you know, the sick need a doctor is what he said. Yep. But how can we also begin to change the culture here in, in Shiloh's microcosm? How can we prioritize rest and, and spiritually nourish ourselves so that we don't get burnt out as a whole. Well, you know, I try to do my part by giving people an opportunity for a 20 or 30 minute nap every Sunday morning. <laughs> Joke. I hope. I wasn't sleeping this weekend. You can tell that. <laughs> well, you know, you, you've just given me a lot to, to respond to and, um, I think I'm going to try to backtrack through your thoughts and the, the busyness that you described. Um, I think it's definitely a consequence of a epidemic of egocentrism mm. in our culture. Um, egocentrism is not the same as egotism um it's egocentrism is an inordinate focus on the self um it's not necessarily a um self-serving uh, uh state of being in that you exclude others you know, in other words, when we think of somebody who's egotistical, we tend to think of that image of the person who struts around thinking they're smarter than everybody, better than everybody, um, who thinks that the rising of the sun and the moon depends on them somehow. You know, they that's what we tend to think of, you know, sort of a diva or something like that. But egocentrism is really just a word that describes... Um, internally focused uh being you know that that you go through your days always viewing everything and encountering everything from a uh selfish point of view like you you know you when 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 you see someone else suffering you don't really have any empathy for them um you only see them as uh, being present if somehow they are an obstruction to you doing what you wanted to do. So an egocentric person could be on their way to the movie theater to go watch a show they really wanted to see. And they drive past a traffic accident where people are... Um, you know, maybe injured or at the very least terribly inconvenienced. And their immediate thought is, is how can I get around this and get on my way to where I want to be? Mm. 
Mm. And then maybe they get out of their car and they walk across the parking lot to the movie theater and there's a person begging um, for spare change or whatever. And they are immediately questioning how they can get where they want to go without having to encounter this person because they just don't want to, you know. And it's because they are focused on their particular want or need. They get in line at the movie theater and they're frustrated because the line is so long and all these people ahead of them want the same thing they do, but that doesn't really matter. They're just between me and what I want. Mm-hmm. And on and on it goes. So that's egocentrism. It's not mean-spirited. It's not arrogant. It's just an indifference to anything that doesn't immediately affect your self-interest. If an egocentric person gives a gift to someone, they are more concerned about how that person is going to make them feel as they receive the gift. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. So, So they go and they buy a gift thinking about what it will do in the recipient to cause you to feel good about yourself. So... So you say, you know, if you're egocentric, you go, you think, well, I got to buy a birthday present for my friend Adrian. And so I'm going to go looking and I look at something not from the point of view of whether you would particularly value it or whether you would particularly um, appreciate it. But the question is, is do I think this gift will cause you to compliment me or praise me or cause other people to admire me for giving so extravagantly or whatever it it's that's egocentrism you know um egocentric people look at the world say as christians as you know look at all the good i do with my missions giving you know um i went to a mission project and helped those poor people (laughs) you know and that that's egocentric you know it it's it's always thinking of everything in your own self-interests and even the people closest to you experience your egocentrism so now that i've defined that term that i've chosen to use i'll take you back to my original point which is i think we have epidemic egocentrism in our culture and i've thought about that because I think you will under, you will hear people in our culture and in commentary about our culture, they'll say we have epidemic narcissism. And that's a much more common expression than the one I used with egocentrism. But I don't think that that is an accurate description of the problem. Uh, narcissists are people who are like the egotist. They're the person that is just really obsessed with themselves. And to be honest with you, narcissism or narcissistic personality disorder, um, you know, borders on on, uh, antisocial and um, uh, uh, I just lost my term, but but it, it borders on more dangerous Um, personality disorders Um, um, you know it doesn't take far it doesn't take you far from narcissism 
to to being somebody who has an incapacity to empathize with anyone and in fact you you don't sense anything uh you don't have feelings you know that this is the word i'm looking for is a, a sociopath right mm -hmm. so narcissistic personality disorder is is real close to sociopathic personalities uh and then a psychopath is even worse and and I think, you know, just in my experience as a pastor, I've encountered these personality disorders and mental, mental illnesses. I've encountered them in churches all through my career. And they don't all turn out to be um, serial killers and stuff like that. Many of them are just people who simply have no capacity to relate to others and to care or in in any way comprehend their impact on others they they just so i think narcissistic personality disorder is not the problem you're describing the parents who drive their kids to be busy 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 and work on their college education at eight years old and and see i don't think that's really narcissistic as much as it is egocentric and I think that the egocentrism is something that our culture has has uh, proliferated. You know, I, our culture uses words in advertising like you deserve this. Mm. You're entitled to that, you know. And, and so it in order to get you to spend money and to get you to do whatever the advertiser or the person who's conveying the message whatever they want you to do they they appeal to your self-interest um you don't see um many people trying to get you to do something for others solely for the purpose of doing something for others you know they they, they try to appeal to your um need to do something for yourself your desire to do something for yourself so so i think egocentrism is the problem and i think it boils down to you know it comes all the way back down to roost in the local home because these are people who are driving their kids and then driving themselves to to be every well i should say driving themselves to not be what they fear they are driving themselves to not be who they fear that they are yeah they fear that they'll be labeled as lazy they fear that they will be considered weak or inferior in some way um because even if you grew up in a household where your parents taught you better than that, society's out there beating you over the head with the message that's counter to it. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole, in, the whole Insurgents book and series of messages that I'm going to do based on the book comes down to a counterculture and a really violent resistance to the counterculture and i use the word violence cautiously because i don't mean to counsel any kind of true violence but to be as radically opposed to embracing that culture 
and so radically devoted to the counterculture um, has a certain violence to it because it's a very abrupt turn. You know, when you recognize that you're moving towards that egocentric culture, that you are just being swept along in the flow of it. And who hasn't been in a really compressed situation, you know, say at a stadium or something like that, where you're just being swept along with the crowd trying to find your way to a door or a ramp or something. And, and you're, you're just like a, a, a fish in a river, but instead you're a person in the sea of people and you're just being swept along and, you know, suddenly you go, no, I'm not going to go the direction that all of these people are going. And so you stop. And then suddenly people are bouncing off of you and they're yelling at you and they're trying to get around you. And then as if that's not enough, you decide to turn and walk in the opposite direction of the flow of things. And then you're seeing face to face all these angry people who are mad at you because you're going against the flow and they're trying to avoid running into you and some of them are pushing you out of the way because they don't even care, you know? And, and so that's, that's what it, this, this is about. This is about saying, I'm gonna take the hits and I'm turning in a different direction, period. You know, uh, being a Christian salmon. starts with repentance and repentance means turning in a new direction. And it should be an abrupt and violent change. It it should be like slamming on the brakes and causing your car to skid. It it should be like taking a hard turn and squealing the tires. You know, that's what a repentance is. Okay, I'm gonna play dumb for a second, but hear me out. So I'm someone who's walking in the crowd. I love your metaphor. This is great. So I'm walking in the crowd along with everyone. And what is it behind me? If we're talking about Christianity, what is that? Why should I turn around, take the hits and, and swim upstream, basically? What is so attractive about this counterculture if I don't know anything about Christianity? Mm. Well... You know, I'm usually pretty quick with a response, but I have to think a little bit. I, my first initial reaction is the Bible tells us very explicitly that darkness represents evil. It represents the house of Satan. I'm, I, please don't take that term too seriously. It's just it's like I'm trying to say, you know, Satan has this place where he lives and it's dark. Mm -hmm. And all bad things happen in the dark. And then God and Christ, they live in this place of light, extraordinary, glorious light. And Jesus even says, my father has prepared a home for you. And it has many, many rooms. And, you know, the streets are paved with gold. I mean, so, so the Bible talks about darkness and light in those terms. And it seems as though the people are moving towards the darkness um, as if they are being pulled by gravity, you know, um, I think you overheard me talking with our friend Barbara this morning, and I was saying to her that natural sin is as though we were citizens of 
the Garden of Eden like Adam and Eve and the gate was open and that's why Satan could just come in and start trying to lead them into a little lie, you know. That, and, and it's like we are people who have uh, been invited back into Eden, but the gate's still open, so Satan's always there trying to, to uh, trick us into thinking that God doesn't act in our best interest, that we shouldn't trust God. You know, and so I think that in the broadest sense, my metaphor is describing people who um, are running from the light and into the darkness. I don't know. I, I'm not comfortable with that, but that's as far as I can go for the moment. But, you know, when, what is it that people... What do they expect to gain in the long run by having children who are very... And I'm not going to let the children take the hit on this one. I, I'm going to take it to the parents. Um, what are the parents expecting the outcome to be if they drive their kids to excel at athletics, they drive their kids to, um, you know, to to be extraordinary or at least as extraordinary as all the other kids whose parents are doing this i mean you got to ask yourself like like you know as a pastor over the years i've noticed that there are lots and lots of those people so so i can honestly say that i don't know anybody whose kids are any better than anyone else's kids but they're all pretty awesome you know like like you know i don't I, I know people who are that busy, but I know other people who are that busy too, you know? And, and so does that mean that the parents are trying to be like the other people in their sphere? Are they, you know, they used to call it keeping up with the Joneses, you know, or the neighbors or whatever. But, but are people, are people, why did they raise their kids this way? I mean, I look at my own life and I go, well, I'll tell you what, I chose very deliberately to raise my kids in a way that was radically different to the way I was raised. Now, I don't want to use this podcast platform as a way of, of you know, airing out my problems. But so I chose to do my parenting a certain way that had more to do with what I didn't want to repeat. And so the outcome I was looking for is now that they're adults and parents themselves, they're doing things like I did instead of saying, I'm going to do it totally different from my dad. Sure. So I guess that means I might have done a few things the way at least my kids think is better. Mm -hmm. So is that what's motivating these people? Are they doing what they think their parents should have done? Mm. Um, are they doing exactly what their parents did. I mean, I don't know. And so for me, it's easier to take that whole thing and define it in terms of light and dark. You know, it's, it's like, okay, instead of trying to get at the core problem of what's motivating people to do the wrong things or things that don't benefit them and their families as much as they think, is to somehow help them see something that does benefit them. Uh, you know, what, 
what I want to say to every one of these parents that you described is, is what do you think you will do in the future with this person if you, this child of yours, if they do everything you're driving them to? This is such a complicated topic, Adrian. It I, is. You're welcome. Well, because because I also know young people who are just driven on their own and their parents aren't driving them. Yeah. They're just doing it because they want to. Well, is it so bad that they want to? I don't know. I, I'll give you an example. I think you were in this discussion too. There was this young person in our congregation who had contacted me to say that they were considering taking on a leadership role at college and they wanted my thoughts on it and they described the situation to me and without knowing that they were also talking to you I said well my biggest concern for you is my understanding that you never do anything halfway that you are always excellent at everything you do and when I went to your graduation party, I saw all your awards and all your pictures. And they ranged from athletics to music to academics. And obviously, you never do anything without doing it as best you can. And somehow, your best always seems to put you ahead of a lot of other people, too. Yeah. So the only question I have for you is, do you think you should do this? if it's going to be hard for you to do it as well as you do everything or is something else going to suffer because you took on one too many things you know like like that was the way i permitted like do i think you're qualified of course i think you're qualified do i think that you could do a good job of course i think you could do a good job but the real concern i have for you as your caring pastor is what will it cost you personally to take this on or is this just you driven again, you know? And and so I didn't really help by giving a specific piece of advice. I helped by by giving a, a, a thought process or a thought exercise, you know? And then I think I found out later that you'd been asked to give an opinion on the same topic. And I'm pretty sure if I remember right, you said the same thing to this person. Yeah, I was sitting here thinking my advice was pretty much the same. It was a little bit more diluted or like watered down a little bit. But yes, I know this person too. And, and I can relate to this person on a deeper level. And I was just like, yes, I mean, do you have the capacity for this? Ask yourself, you know, mm -hmm. what else is going to have to suffer? That kind of thing. Um, and I think gifting someone a thought process and teaching them how to think through things is a much better gift than a piece of advice yeah right because it, it's like you know you can feed a man a fish but something about teaching them to fish for themselves you know what i'm talking about yeah right? well and and it's that critical thinking that we talk about often i think critical thinking is a vital skill that a lot of people lack and although i have to I'm certain that this person has that skill, but right. in that case, then we're really just giving them some new data to crunch. You yeah. Know, yeah. Cause they already know. But, but again, I, I haven't solved anything. We haven't really resolved anything and, and, and we're kind of up against it today on our time. But, but, you know, you, you put together a really profound, you know, uh, 
discussion about you know how we spend our lives and one of the things i want to come back to that you talked about was the importance of rest and and being idle and and all of that and i think that somewhere in this discussion one of the kind of core threads is this need to do something that produces something mm-hmm. that somehow we have found ourselves worshiping worshiping the idol of productivity mm. and i you know like like why do schools when they're faced with tight budgets why do they always drop arts and music and stuff like that why do they drop the arts but they build very expensive stadiums to play football in you know why do schools when their budgets are hurting um you know cut the library's budget and and things like that and i think it really boils down to the fact that people in charge of the money are trying to invest in the things that are the most productive you know they they're looking for something that generates outcomes that you can immediately measure and i think that we kind of have this again this sort of egocentric and borderline narcissistic culture in our in our our uh, society that is so um pervasive that we don't realize that we we don't value things that that don't appear to produce anything but i think we know i see this is the problem and this is why my my feelings about this are so incomplete i think we know that those things are of value it's like it's like the art museums haven't gone out of business but what kind of people do you see standing in front of a painting for a half an hour studying it you know it's not productive people Mm. Ah, well it maybe it is but see because so hey people who like art don't be mad at me that's not the point i'm trying to make i like standing in front of a painting and look at it i i remember looking at a monet painting in chicago for a half an hour one day just staring at it like counting the dots you know and and uh not so much counting them as admiring how they were just uh, all these little dots I mean, he invented pixels before pixels were a thing, you know. <laughs> but but my my point, I guess, is to say that um, a lot of people who worship the idol of productivity can't conceive of why anybody would sit outside for an hour and watch the sunset when you could be having a martini with somebody who can help you make more money or get you more property or more position or more authority or whatever like 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 that's what i'm driving at is in and you know this is this is an age-old dilemma i mean i i like old movies and and stuff like that and you know i i uh talk about these things all the time and you guys don't know what i'm talking about because you never heard of those people but <laughs> But this theme is as old as society that, that in fact, the, the, uh, uh, I remember I did a series of sermons from the Proverbs where Solomon wrote all these really depressing things. And I decided that Solomon was, criti- he was clinically depressed. I, my impression of, of Proverbs 
is that it was written by, or not Proverbs. Um, I said Proverbs, but I didn't mean Proverbs. Or did I? Oh, this is what I get for just shooting my mouth off. Proverbs. It was Proverbs. Anyway, there's this place where, where Solomon is describing a guy, you know, working his tail off. And then at the end, it doesn't really amount to anything. You know, it's just like, it's like he's just depressed. And, and he's basically describing the folly of being on the treadmill to oblivion that you described. You know, people just going on and on and on and on and on. And for what? Right. Mm -hmm. And and you realize that, you know, when you die, you're going to leave everything you ever earned or created or generated behind. But you're going to have vivid memories and others are going to have vivid memories when you and five of the closest people to you sat by a campfire and smelled the smoke and listening to the crackling and the popping, you know, you looked up at the stars and you talked about things that matter and you took it slow. You know, we're, you're going to remember that in eternity. And I think that's a very important countercultural shift that you're describing because we as Christians believe that there is an eternity and that when you die, if you're a Christian and you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, this is not easy believism, right? Like you talked about mm -hmm. in on Sunday. But like if you truly believe in your heart of hearts that God and Jesus are your Lord and Savior, you're going to go to eternity because that's their home. That's where they live and you want to be with them. You're already in eternity. Yeah. I right. mean, I, I, it's so easy for us to think of them as being separate. Yeah. But when you're born again, you just entered eternity. You just haven't moved to permanent physical existence yet. Yeah. But I don't want to shoot. I don't no, want to. That's okay. Just, yeah. That's always been a weird technicality that I can't let myself forget. It. Um, but but the bottom line is there is a shift there. Like we believe in eternity. We believe yeah. in life after death. That's like one of the, the cornerstone things in Christianity versus someone who doesn't believe that there's anything after death. If after death there is nothing but darkness mm -hmm. and you just become dust and there's nothing, why wouldn't you work as hard as you can for your entire life to accomplish as much as physically possible, knowing that this is your one shot? And when you die, that's it. There's nothing else. You know, I think you've rounded this out perfectly with that because if there's a point to this insurgent series that I want people to take away because the book insurgents is subtitled reclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom is eternal. The kingdom is not of this world. It's not a kingdom that you can find on earth. It's a kingdom that exists. It's transcendent. It exists in and out of time and space it's it's the kingdom of christ and wherever christ the king is you're in the kingdom if you're with him so if i am if i am subject to his authority over my life which is a very benevolent and generous authority a grace-filled authority then i am a subject of the kingdom of christ which is everywhere and always and for all time and it's outside 
and inside space and time. And, and so the whole idea of being a citizen of Christ's kingdom, that's good news because there are no other kingdoms that ever were or ever will be that can offer you all of that and free of charge. You know, you just embrace it. The, the hardest price you have to pay, the highest price you have to pay is some self-reflection that makes you realize what a dismal, miserable person you are without Christ. Mm. You know, and and you just described it because that would be the treadmill of oblivion lifestyle. You know, uh, I've had gerbils and hamsters and it sounds like you have too. And what do they do all night long? <laughs> Run on that stupid squeaky wheel. <laughs> For what? And and you know what? Every one of us who's ever had a gerbil or a hamster knows that it dies. Sooner or later, one day, you look in there and it's just laying there stiff as a board and gets buried in the backyard, you know. And, and that's really what we're describing if you do not have uh, citizenship in the kingdom of Christ. And the problem is the world is trying to sell us the idea of the hamster's existence. You know, the world's trying to, and, and I guess where I, my final point, Adrian, is this. The insurgent series that I am preaching is directed at people in the pews. Most, pretty much 100% of my ministry has been to church attenders. In other words, I, I, don't, I don't do like public evangelism. I, I don't go and, and, and uh you know preach crusades and things like that that's not my thing i serve as a pastor and i care for the flock and what i know about every flock i've ever been charged with caring for that there are quite a number of the people within the flock who are christians on the treadmill to oblivion they have not embraced the kingdom of christ and the freedom that it gives to not produce anything of any particular value to yourself or the rest of the world to simply be available to the king jesus christ to do whatever he calls you to do and he might call you to sit by the sea of galilee and watch some guys fish for half a day and then he'll say now watch what happens how's it going <laughs> did you throw your net on the other side yet you know watch this you know see that that's productivity in the kingdom of christ he's never in a hurry there's no urgency to get it done and get it done now and honestly that's what i want you know that's i i mean i really worry more than anything about Christians on that treadmill to oblivion. That's my biggest passion is getting people in the pews to wake up to the fact that they have blended the ideologies of our society with their Christian ideology and somehow created this diluted mix that makes them feel prosperous and successful because they're Christians when in fact being Christian had nothing to do with it. I love that perspective that you just painted. Um, and, and another countercultural moment there of like heaven and eternity 
means that you no longer have to uh, serve the idol of productivity. Mm-hmm. You no longer have to toil and work and grind and suffer and feel exhausted. And you just get to sit and rest and live in the glory of God. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't want that in the world that we live in today? That's attractive. Yeah. That's the light. And, and that's listen, just... you know, folks, don't don't get the impression that we're saying that you don't need to earn a living. Right. Right. But if that's what it's about, then that's what it's about. Um, if you're called to something in particular and it gives you joy and it is part of God's plan for your life, great. But it, it's not as though we're saying you should be unproductive to be a good Christian. We're saying that Christ should be your God, not productivity. That as in as much as it serves my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, my King, I will work to that end. And what I will get in exchange for it is a roof over my head, food on my table, and the various things I need. And when my life is over, it's over, and I'll leave the roof and the food and all that behind. Yeah. Yeah. I think what we're talking about is when it becomes unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When it, when it takes away from your joy of life (laughs) when you're a christian on the treadmill to oblivion yeah so i threw a lot at you today and i didn't expect you to have like the answer because only god has the answer i mean we're talking about age-old dilemmas here but it's important to start these conversations and to kind of just mull it over and talk about it because that's when change happens so i i would strongly advise everyone listening to get a copy of the insurgents book that's insurgents reclaiming the gospel of the kingdom by frank viola and it's available on amazon in all the formats including audio and uh you can get it in other places where books are sold and it's been out long enough now you can probably pick up a copy of it used for a buck or two from uh you know goodwill has a, a online site and you can get books cheap through that and uh so definitely engage the book but also consider listening to the series of messages that i'll be teaching and preaching because they'll be on this same channel as this and uh you know if you live in the vicinity of jasper indiana come on over and do it in person with us we'd love to see you yeah awesome all right until next week Next week, God bless you, everybody. Bye.